everybody, and welcome to the Radical Candor Podcast. I'm Amy Sandler, Radical Candor Chief Content Officer, and your host for the podcast. And I'm Jason Rosoff, CEO and co-founder of Radical Candor. Where's Kim, you might be asking? Well, Kim's launching her new book, Just Work, which you can pre-order now, comes out March 16th, and she'll be joining us every few episodes. For today's episode, you've got me and Jason, and we'll be talking about the importance of stories. Even more important, your stories. Because if you want to implement Radical Candor at work, you're going to want to explain Radical Candor to your team in your own words. Sure, you could ask them to read the book. Hey, the Kindle version is $1.99 through February 2021. You also can show them videos that explain the principles of Radical Candor. You can do all of these things, and it's best if you explain it in your own words by telling your stories to your team. Show some vulnerability. Your personal stories will explain better than any management theory what you really mean and show, I think even more important, why you really mean it. That's why Kim tells all those personal stories in Radical Candor. And your stories are going to mean a lot more to your team than other people's stories, whether it's Kim, Jason's, or mine, because they mean something to you. And if you've read Radical Candor or heard Kim's talk before, you will notice that she always starts with a story, uh, including the story of being told by a stranger that she was putting her dog in danger. Stranger, danger. Uh, (laughs) And... Her other story about how her boss at work let her know that saying, um, every third word was damaging her credibility. So with that in mind, Amy and I are going to share some of our stories with you today to helpfully help to illustrate how storytelling helped us identify what radical candor is from our experiences in the past. So Amy, why don't you get us started with your story? Uh, I I think it has something to do with your hair. Jason, I... I'm concerned that most of my stories seem to have something to do with my hair, but yes, this this is a, a story. I like to call this one uh, the country song part of my life. And like any good country song, in the span of just two months, I lost a lot. I lost my cat. I lost my job. I lost my home. I lost my partner. And also, I was burned in a fire. Uh, and so all I had left really was like any good country song, my dog and my truck. Well, technically it was, it was an SUV, but SUV just doesn't sound as good in the song. So it was a really rough patch I went through in a couple months there. And I was, I was desperate for a job, but as a result of this uh, fire, I had what was called a flash burn. It was pretty traumatic. I'm fine now, but at the time it was, was really traumatic and my face was burned and I actually lost some of the hair right at the top of my forehead. And as a result from the trauma, I was really afraid to go to the salon for several months. And so needless to say, as someone that gets her hair uh, at that time straightened and uh, colored, it was a disaster. So my friend and former boss, Steve, reached out to me and he had this amazing job opportunity and it sounded fantastic. And I had an in-person interview uh, the following Monday. This was a Friday. I had a wedding to go to that weekend. And so my best friend came over and said, hey, there's this hairspray that you can use to to deal with the color situation. I said, oh my gosh, I had no idea. She sprayed my hair. It was fantastic. Problem solved. So it's Monday morning. I had traveled for the interview. I'm in one of those hotel rooms where 
I don't know if you've ever been in this kind of hotel. It's really more like a motel where you're in the bathroom and the fan and the light are in fact the same functionality. And so I'm trying to get my hair done and I'm starting to sweat and I'm rushing and I'm sweating and I'm spraying and I'm like, this is not working. Let me go outside where somehow in the magic of the natural sunlight, I'll be able to spray my hair. It will all be fine. So I'm spraying and I'm spraying them in the parking lot and I'm rushing and I'm spraying. And I was like, I, this is totally fine. Yes, I went to the interview. I nailed it as expected. And that night I had dinner with Steve and Steve said, Amy, how do you think it went? And I said, oh my gosh, it was great. I'm so excited. When do I start? So Steve looked at me and he said, well, you know, things take a little bit of time to move through the system. And I moved through the system. I mean, I'm ready to roll. And he looked at me with these very kind and caring blue eyes. And he said, you know, Amy, I need to be honest with you. There were some concerns about your professionalism. Concerns about my professionalism. I'd never heard that. And he said, you know, they said you looked disheveled. And when he said that, I was in a restaurant. I was actually looking around for one of those magical holes that I could just be scooped up into. My my stomach was sort of fell out from, from me, and I was looking to just evaporate. There were really two things going on for me at the time, Jason. One was I was so embarrassed. I was so horrified. And there was also this part of me that was like, that's so weird. I don't think I've ever heard the word disheveled pronounced aloud. And it's really, um, Mm -hmm. that's so odd. So I was holding both of those things at once. And Steve knows me very well. He knows how sensitive I am. He also knows that I I have a bit of a sense of humor. And he said, Amy, you kind of look like a tiger. There were all of these orange stripes across the back of your jacket and all over the back of your hair. Then he started laughing a little and I started laughing and using that humor for me was so helpful because it was like, Hey, this was a mistake. This was a correctable mistake. And it was the greatest gift he could have given me because if he had not told me that, I don't think I would have gotten the job and I was desperate for the job. So he didn't let my perfectionism, my sort of sheer embarrassment at the situation get in the way of telling me what I needed to know to get the job. And by the way, when I got the job and a few months into it, I told them what had happened. But I think even more important, he gave me this gift of helping me get over this fear about going back to the salon. And I actually went to the salon and I got my hair done. And in some ways that was almost a bigger gift to help me move past the trauma of that fire and really get back into day-to-day life. So that is my radically candid, uh, disheveled hair story. There's so many layers to that to that story, and I think like different people will probably access different parts of it. How did it help you get the job? What did the feedback give you the opportunity to do that helped you close that job? Yeah, it's such a great question. Well, it gave me a chance to actually correct the mistake. And so, one of the things that I think is really important is that when we think about radical candor, these are things that we can actually do and change. If it was something about my hair that was really part of my identity, and I've had feedback in that, that that's really, no, I don't want to change that. But this was something that was unintended. I was literally walking around with stripes and streaks in my hair that I had no way of knowing about. And so one of the things that we talk about are sort of these, you know, 360 degree views. Like I can't know what I look like from behind. And so he was literally holding a mirror to me, showing me the mistake that I made. And yet if he hadn't told me that, I don't think I would have gotten the job. So, so I was able to correct the mistake and show up at the next interview, not disheveled. I had gotten my hair done 
I was wearing a professional outfit the first time, so it wasn't so much about the clothes. It was what I had done to the clothes with the hairspray that was part of the whole disheveled <laughs> look and feel. So I I showed up and I did have someone, you know, make sure before I went into the interview that I was, in fact, right. from all angles, 360 degrees. Looking uh, not as disheveled. you intended. What happened to your relationship with Steve? It so was clearly was strengthened as a result of that. I mean, I will say in the moment, I was so upset and embarrassed and you know, the first thing in my head wasn't like, oh my gosh, thank you. This is such a gift. I'm so grateful. Like it took me a little time to get there. The gift that he gave me was that he knew that I needed this job and he told me what I needed to know, even potentially at the expense of my being upset with him. And that was a huge gift that was really so in service of me and I'm forever grateful for him. And it it made him even more of a valued friend and advisor for me. Yeah, I think that speaks to one of the biggest fears that that people have when it comes to giving feedback, especially about wardrobe or or hair hair malfunctions. We're nervous. We use the example in our workshops all the time of spinach in your teeth, but then we go one step further and say, now imagine the person's fly is down. And like it's hard to know what to do in that moment. And, you know, as as a friend, a colleague, someone who I have a lot of respect for you. I'd like to think that I would have done the same thing that that Steve did. And I know that it would have been hard for me to do it. Yeah. Thank you. And I kind of feel the emotion as you're sharing that, because it's like, you don't want to hurt your friend's feelings. And he knows how sensitive I am. And that hearing the word disheveled was going to really like literally take my breath away in a very negative way. Now for someone else, it might not be a big deal for me. It was, it was really, really embarrassing And so I really appreciate you reflecting that because I was always grateful to him for that. But I think I'm even more grateful as I, as I hear that, because I know he knows me so well to know that that was a huge risk that he took for me. So I'm going to go reach out again and say, thank you. So thank you for that reminder. Jason, I think we've already heard your radical candor story in this podcast. It was about, I believe it was about your quote, mean face. Is that right? Yes. My, my pained face visage when I was focused on other things. Your focused and pained face. So for those who want to go through the archives, we welcome you. But in the meantime, Jason, what about sharing one of your stories, maybe when you were acting in a way that was either obnoxiously aggressive or manipulatively insincere, or from ruinous empathy? Pick your pick your poison. Yeah, um, I'll tell my, my ruinous empathy story because I, I think especially for folks who manage creative or technical types, I think that this kind of thing comes up a lot. So I was maybe two or three years into my time at, at Khan Academy. And I had hired this person straight out of art school to be a production software interface designer. And he was amazingly skilled. And he had a tendency to add his own sort of personal artistic flair to all the things that he was creating, which is great at the beginning of a project, but it becomes sort of problematic when it's at the end of a project and we've agreed on sort of style guides and how things should look. And, and yet we're still getting artistic flair in, in, uh, in the designs that he's producing. And it was like actually confusing. Like there would be two pages on, on a single page, there'd be two buttons that look different kind of a thing. Right. So the, there was, it was causing real confusion, but I was so 
I, I so liked this person and I so appreciated his desire to be an artist that I really soft pedaled this feedback. And so I would say in sort of a roundabout way, oh, well, you know, I noticed that these two things are different and it wouldn't be great if they were actually the same because then people would know that these two things meant the same thing. And this happened a few times. And in my mind, I was like trying to protect the artist in him. I, I didn't want to be the type of person who crushed the spirit uh, of an artist by, by telling him, no, you must make all of the buttons look exactly the same. And I thought that that was fine. I, you know, the, I, I would look at the end product and I would see that things were fixed. And so I thought that the feedback was getting through and that things were fine. But a few months later, another team member walked into my office and said, look, I, I can't take it anymore. It, either this guy goes or I go. And I was like, what, what are you talking about? And she told me that she had been the one going in and fixing all of those mistakes that he was making. And so I, I remember sort of feeling shocked isn't even the right word. I was in disbelief. I, I could not believe what had happened. And, ha and I think that I was reeling from sort of three simultaneous failures. I felt like a failure as a, as a manager, because I certainly failed to give this person the feedback that they needed. I also felt like I failed the person standing in front of me at a human level because I wasn't concerned enough with what was going on in the team to know that there were people who were doing other, other folks' work. And last but not least, I had failed the, the person to whom I owed this feed, the, the feedback as well because it had hurt their reputation, right? This other person, other people noticed that they were making this mistake. And in the end, I think I had a, a really sort of direct conversation with him. And he, he basically said, look, I know what I really want to do. What I really want to do is like, I, I want the opportunity to make unique and beautiful things. And I said, that's great. It's like really great to know that that's what you want to do. And like, there's a time for that in our process. And then there's a time where that's not actually going to be helpful and ultimately, he decided to join a studio where every project is unique <laughs> and you got to do something new every single time a project mm -hmm. started up. But I, I remember fearing that conversation of like getting down to brass tacks, but ultimately it, it made him clearer about what it is that he wanted. He did get stuff right after that, meaning he didn't make the same errors and we did part ways, but we parted ways amicably. Like it was a fine ending to that relationship. And he went on to do the things that he cared more to do. And at the same time, there were like months of lost productivity and real harm being done to folks on the team because I was avoiding that conversation. It's so interesting when you share that what leapt out at me was the disbelief and the different sort of relationships that it was impacting. And I think when I think even about my own story and just the embarrassment and enough time has passed in space, but I can remember just, it was so like that kick in the gut feeling. And so, mm -hmm. you know, we share these stories because there's, uh, there's some real kind of emotional heft to them, but I think there's so many moments throughout a day where we have little dips into sort of the disbelief or the embarrassment. These are the ones that are sort of the big ticket items, but there's so many moments where I think we have these little emotional uh, sparks, I think, that reflect these other stories. And so these stories can really illuminate the emotional part of what makes radical candor challenging and when we push through it, really the benefit of it. So in the same way that you called out 
how that really impacted my relationship with Steve and how I feel even closer to him. I think what you shared was that you, you did end up in a good place in the relationship because you did finally have the conversation, but, but there was a cost. I mean, it took several months to get there and the relationship, both with the woman that came to you, as well as maybe some of the other folks on the team. And so there, there are these costs. And I think it's through these stories that we realize, oh, what matters most to me is that these relationships and the work are, are sort of top of mind. And so if I can use that to get over the fear of that momentary discomfort, um, hopefully that can propel us to choose radical candor. What do you think, Jason? Yeah, I, I would build on that by saying that like the whole situation was like holding up a mirror, but I'm incredibly grateful um, to the woman on my team who came in and, and in her desperation, like really showed me that I was not being the type of leader that I wanted to be. You know, my goal is to show respect for all the people on my team. And it was this moment, it was a turning point for me just to see like that I couldn't measure my success only in terms of the individual relationships and conversations that I had that as a leader, I had to measure my success by the overall health of the relationships between me and my team and among the members of my team. And I think that those signals come up more often than we care to see. Like, you know, a manager might see a conflict between two people on the team and they might say, oh, it's really their job to work it out. And I think that's true, but a manager needs to be interested enough in making sure that it got worked out, that they don't sort of ignore it and let it fester, um, for example. And so what I learned from this experience was both a bit about how I wanted to be, and I got a lesson in what I should be paying attention to. Often we think about it in terms of sort of individual behaviors and ideas. But for me, my, my radical candor story and that story, the thing that I took away from both of them is not only behavior that I needed to change, but also data, intelligence about what it really means to be a manager and what kinds of things you should be looking for. And it's sort of cool to think like the opportunity to learn that abounds, right? In these small moments, there's like a lot that we can be taught every, every time we have that momentary feeling of sort of like shock or disbelief or, and I would say like, there are times when I have that feeling where it's fleeting, where it's like, oh, like I'm very surprised that that happened. And I've learned that every time I ignore that feeling, I have missed out (laughs) on learning something valuable. One thing I want to mention on sort of the data is just really about the value of emotions in decision-making. And there was a really interesting study done. It was called the Iowa Gambling Task Study. We can put some notes in the in the show notes. And what was so interesting, this, this just shows how emotions, those sort of sparks, whatever we want to call them, that is data that we are getting that something is happening that we need to pay attention to. So what happened was they gave participants, uh, I think there were four, four decks of cards, two were blue, two were red. And I think the blue cards were the winning cards. The red cards were the losers. Question was, how long was it going to take folks to figure out, okay, I want to go for the blue cards, not the red cards. What was so interesting, by 50 cards, participants started to get a hunch Uh, that they wanted the blue cards rather than the red cards. And by 80 cards, they knew for sure, okay, the the decks are stacked. The blue cards are the winners. The red cards are the losers. That was the cognitive awareness. But on a physiological, intuitive basis, they they hooked them up to polygraph um, to sort of measure stress response. And by 10 cards... So 10 cards in, they started having a physiological response. Their palms started sweating, demonstrating some stress, and their behavior started changing. They started choosing the blue cards 
but they weren't consciously aware of this until 40 cards later. And so what I think is so interesting, exactly what you're saying, those moments of like, oh, isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? Our body is giving us this information ahead of time. And so starting to pay attention to, oh, I'm starting to notice this is happening. Isn't that interesting? Now, by the way, there might be other things going on. It doesn't mean that it's true. It just means, oh, I'm getting some sort of response to pay attention to and to get really curious about. So I just throw that in because I think we tend to go more with the cognitive, oh, it's because of this, almost justifying that sort of precognitive emotional response that we're having. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is really where the power of storytelling comes in. Hopefully, as we told those stories earlier, you as a listener had a feeling, a gut emotional response. And that that moment of emotional synchronicity, you feeling empathy for what we went through, a feeling of kinship or a sense of sameness, uh, gave you that same sort of moment of awareness of like, isn't that interesting, right? Isn't it interesting that I'm experiencing this or this feels resonant to me? I feel like I've been through something similar. That is a really powerful tool. And they've actually done fMRI studies of people listening to stories. And there's a saying like, let's get on the same wavelength. And there's actual literal evidence for Mm -hmm. that, that when we tell stories, we see that our, some of our brainwaves actually synchronize with one another. And from a learning perspective, it's not so much about, you know, you get the exact point across that you think you're getting across, but it's, it's more like you're creating an environment, a fertile, some fertile soil in that sort of emotional resonance for people to pay attention to what you're saying and find their own story, right? Find their own answer. And this is a, this is a tool that I think is really under underutilized because the data on its own. So for example, like there's a way, Amy, for you to tell the story of what happened in the Iowa gambling task, where it was like 15% of this and 20% of that and 5% this way and and 10% went up and 5% went down. And I feel like I'm interested to know the size of the effect because of the way that you told the story about what happened. Because I was there, right? Like I could imagine being in that moment with those people and realizing that, you know, someone giving me the data on myself and saying like, Hey, I know you realize this at this point, but your body realized it earlier. And that is just so fascinating to me that, that experience of like how, how practiced we are at, at ignoring the sign, like those intuitive signs that we could, it could take us literally four times longer for our brain to catch up with our body, with, with our body's awareness of something. And for me, like, the percentages matter in terms of like, you know, what are we going to do with this information? But the story matters more uh, as a way to get us excited about learning more. Well, it's so interesting you mentioned that because what's coming up for me is is really the root story of all of this, of my country song story, which is about the fire, which is that it was my birthday and I was in Big Bear. And what happened was we had rented a, a new house, like a, it was an Airbnb, something like that. And the person said, okay, everything is fine. There's a fireplace, et cetera. You, it's, it should be fine to use. And so 
it was one of these things where you had to use an ignition to spark the, the fire. And I tried it a few times and it didn't work. And I can recall a deep feeling in my gut of not to do it. And yet there was this almost pride, like, no, I can figure it out. And then I finally did it. And all of a sudden, instead of the flames going up the flue, which was actually not clear, that went on my face. And that was how I got burned. And so it was literally such an amazing story of not listening to your gut, which had happened multiple. There were three times when I tried it, didn't work, tried it, didn't work, tried it, didn't work. I finally did it. And it literally blew up in my face. And I mean, I hope for our listeners, they don't have to go through such, you know, really kind of, it's a little on the nose as a story goes, but it is actually what what happened. (laughs) (laughs) And it was literally just above my nose. But, you know, so often we don't listen to those, those clues. And I think, you know, I want to just go back to what you were talking about as a manager and the stories, you know, so often we talk about radical canners in these one-on-one conversations. And you think about as stories, it's really the hero's journey. And we're kind of all the hero of our own story and what's happening through our journey. And I think one of the things about as a manager, the, the power of story is not only sharing your story, but that empathetic perspective taking. So Jason, as you were sharing your story, I was thinking about, oh, I could totally relate to the artist who really wants to, you know, create, you know, be creative and, and be unique and have their own flair. And I could really feel what that was like for them and that they really appreciated being seen and supported by you. And then I felt that, you know, the, the gratitude to this woman and the risk that she took to say, hey, here's what's happening for the team and how frustrated she must have been to keep having to correct the buttons and remove the buttons. And when is somebody going to finally see that there's two different buttons here? And then, you know, you as the protagonist, as you're telling it, but there were all these other sort of the dramatist personae of your story. And so I think what's so interesting that you brought in is I want to call out is that as managers, you know, as humans, we are, we are living as sort of the heroes of our own stories and as managers, how important it is to really put yourself in the shoes of all of these other characters on our team and sort of how is it looking from their perspective? Yeah. And one of the most powerful things that I've ever done is I've shared those stories with people on my team, not so much in the narrative form that I did just now um, because they had a lot of the context, but after my getting feedback about my, my thinking face, I talked to the team about it. I said, Hey, I've got this, I got this feedback that I do this thing and I'm not aware of it. And I don't think I'm going to be able to become immediately aware of it. So I'm letting you know that this is happening to give you all the opportunity, one, to to have some data on me that to help you understand that what you might be perceiving may not actually be what I'm feeling. And two, I'm inviting you in to help me become aware. I don't want this to to continue to derail us. And the same thing with the the feedback uh, on on the buttons was just like, I cop to the team. I said, Hey, I, I screwed this up. Like I should have addressed this sooner. This is my fault. This isn't anybody else's fault on the team. And I want you to know that like my goal is to be better about this. And so if at any time you feel like, Hey, Jason has a blind spot, there's something he's not seeing or he's not responding to quickly. Know that uh, there's a very low likelihood that I am, that I'm kicking that can down the road intentionally. And it might be for emotional reasons or just a lack of awareness. And so I'd really prefer you to come and share your perspective with me as clearly and honestly as possible so that I have the ability to act on it. And I think both of those things and telling my, in, in sort of telling my story, but also sharing my interest in avoiding that negative outcome again, created a, a different level of 
of trust, a new kind of relationship with my team where they started to perceive my act, my true intention, which was to be the most effective manager that I could be for them and saw my failings, not as, you know, some intentional machination, but as the sort of combination of ignorance and and lack of skill that they really were and felt like they could come to me and start telling me the things that I was doing wrong. And that was both of those things represent sort of watershed moments in the relationships that I had with people on the team. So great. And, you know, we talk a lot about not just the sharing of the stories, but exactly what you did, which is sharing the mistakes and rewarding the candor. So when someone comes to you and gives you that feedback to share that with the team, how valuable that is. And so I think you're giving them the gift, not only of modeling your own vulnerability, but it also starts to realize like, Hey, we all make mistakes. And so we're creating a space as a team where mistakes aren't something we need to hide under the rug, but actually we can bubble up and more quickly deal with them and become so much more efficient. And I've noticed that certainly in how we work together, Jason, and I'm so, I'm so grateful for that. So Jason, when we think about sharing our stories, one of the exercises we like folks to do in our workshops is share their own stories have people explain what does care personally or challenge directly? What do those things mean to them? How do they show up for them? So do you want to explain that a little bit more about the benefits of that exercise? Yeah, I I think our goal in storytelling is to, is to help build awareness about what it is that we really want people to, to take away. And I think as people start to practice telling their their radical candor stories or ruinous empathy, manipulative sincerity or obnoxious aggression stories, as people start to tell them, I think it's really important to focus on which details help to illuminate which parts of those ideas. And with the radical candor stories in particular, one of the most common mistakes that we see is that people start to tell those stories and the challenge directly part is really clear, meaning the feedback that they got that was helpful is really clear. But the care personally part is sort of, there's some assumptions that are being made about how that translates. And I think, Amy, you did a really good job in your story of describing the relationship and even the care that Steve took in the moment to help you know that like where this feedback was coming from. But that's missing in a lot of the stories that we tell. And so the reason why we have people tease that out is because if it's not obvious on even a small group of people in a workshop, it's probably also not going to be obvious to your team, like what, where the care personally came in where the challenge and what the challenge directly was. And so we, we will often use that to give other people the opportunity to say like, what did you hear? What was the challenge and where did the care personally come in? And usually people need that opportunity to revise the care personally. And so a lot of times it boils down to just adding a few details to say, here's the context of our relationship. Like we had been working together really closely on this project for a few months, for example, or other common things that we hear are, uh, they took the time. They did this in private. They didn't put me on, on blast mm-hmm. in public. They understood what my goal was. And so the feedback that they gave me was aligned to what I was trying to achieve. And as you add those details, the stories become a lot clearer and what they're illustrating becomes a lot more obvious to the audience. Yeah, it's such a great point. And I think it helps people really clarify for themselves. What does care personally mean for me? And so it taking time, you know, giving me the time, the, the gift of in a really busy day, they actually took the time. They took the risk. I mean, Steve took a real risk to do that. And he did it in service of what was most important to me in that moment, which was I really needed that job. Mm -hmm. And so we'll often hear, especially for folks that are really much more in that 
sort of growth part of their career that people that see that they could be promoted, but they're not up to snuff right now that they need to actually do more. And so we'll often hear also not just time, what is it that they want, but they'll see something in them that maybe that person hasn't seen in themselves. They're almost like the coach that knows they can do it. And the work to date hasn't been quite there. I hear that also sometimes in the stories. Yeah. And I think that that specificity, like one, it makes the stories more interesting and two, it just makes them far more clear. And our goal in telling stories is usually to get some combination of emotion and cognition, right. Happening on the, on the other side. And I think that it's easy to take for granted that things that are obvious to you in your head are translating. And so that's one of the reasons why we do this in the workshop to give people a chance to practice actually telling the story and seeing like, Oh, what details are missing? Or, you know, maybe something that felt one way for them came across in a very different way to other people. So for example, you know, just continuing this sort of like hair personally is not obvious. Someone will say something and they're smiling and it sounds really harsh to everybody in the room, <laughs> you know, but they're feeling it as a positive memory, right? They're experiencing it as like a good thing that happened. And we, we can say like, wow, that didn't come across us. Like it, it wasn't actually clear what was funny about that to you. Cause it just seemed sort of mean. And they're like, Oh no, 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 no. Let me, let me tell you. So like that combination of like awareness of specificity and actually practicing saying it out loud makes a huge difference. Before we get into our checklist, there's one final practice I want to mention, especially when we think about being specific and being clear. And some of you that are listening might know this. It's it's called a six-word memoir practice. I think one of the most famous six-word memoirs. It's been attributed to Ernest Hemingway. For sale, baby shoes, never worn. And I remember when I first heard that, how touched I was, that there was a beginning, a middle, and an end, and so much emotion in just six words, right? And so I think it's really powerful to think that we don't actually need that many words to really tell a story. And when we have folks think about the kind of feedback they want to give to people, we often don't spend enough time thinking about what is it that I want them to know? What is it that I want them to feel, right? I want them to feel I'm doing this to be helpful. I'm doing this to be, you know, from a humble place. I'm doing this to help them grow. And so really taking into mind, not just what is the data that I want to communicate, but also how do I want them to feel? Now I say this knowing that we cannot control how other people are going to feel. We cannot manage their emotions. And yet we can come in with an intention of, I really want to be helpful, whether we say that or not. So it doesn't need to take a lot of words. And this can actually be a really cool way to start a meeting. You could do a six word memoir about your weekend, about your life. It could be about your company. It's a great way to find out, you know, what does your company stand for? So I I was trying to think, Jason, of of how I might tell my story in six words. I came up with disheveled hair won't keep me down. (laughs) I like it. You like it? I wanted a bit of I a, like it. I feel, you know, there's sort of an agency there. Like I'm kicked in the gut. I feel yeah. like an idiot. And yet it's not going to keep me down. I'm sure you could it's do that. It's not going to break your stride. It is not going to break my stride. Ain't nobody going to keep break my stride. In fact. <laughs> so now it's time for our radical candor checklist tips. You can use to start putting radical candor into practice immediately. So first tell your stories to your team, model vulnerability. Explain what radical candor means in your own words. And by doing this, you're creating an environment of psychological safety 
where you show your humanity to the team and you invite them to do the same. Number two, uh, be specific. Uh, good stories have details that bring them to life. Uh, I, th I think, you know, my example of a, a person graduating art school, like that's a really important detail. Without that, the, the rest of the story would have made almost no sense. But sometimes we take those things for granted. Make sure to include that context, what you observed and what the results are and what happened next. Number three, good stories help us build empathy. So think about the people you work with, especially those you might be having some difficulties with, and consider the situation that you're involved in. What does it look like from their perspective? What story might they be telling? And then last but not least, try out the six-word memoir practice. We've got a link in the show notes where you can find out more details about it. It could be about you, your weekend, your company's mission, or your radical candor story, but do it as a group. It's an opportunity to get different perspectives. All right. So that's it for this week's episode. Don't forget to pre-order Kim's new book, Just Work, and make sure to sign up for our comedy-based Radical Candor self-paced e-course. Go to RadicalCandor.com backslash resources, enter the code feedback, that's F-E-E-D-B-A-C-K at checkout and you'll save 10%. We'll see you next time. Thanks for joining us. Our podcast features Radical Candor co-founders Kim Scott and Jason Rosoff, is produced by our director of content, Brandy Neal, and hosted by me, Amy Sandler. Music is by Cliff Goldmacher. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter at Candor and find us online at RadicalCandor.com. Yes. The firearm safety test has now concluded. So I think we could have a little aside here about Amy's challenges with the fire alarm. The fire alarm safety test has now concluded. Please proceed with any future alarms as you work for the emergency. Thank you for your cooperation. And that's just a little glimpse of my life okay. in quarantine. I told Jason, Amy last night I was convinced you. that she's a part of a longitudinal psychological experiment where there's like hidden cameras in her apartment and they're just <laughs> testing to see if how long it takes for her to completely break between the smoking and the fire oh alarms. <laughs> good, good grief.